You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 24. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. When you encounter people on the street, in the gym, at your workplace, what do you meet? Who do you meet? Who do you engage with in conversation? And what impression do those individuals make upon you? I've noticed, especially the deeper into the summer we go right now, the longer we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, the panic that has been stirred up in the population here in the United States in particular as a consequence, the fallout from the George Floyd killing, the political back and forth, the constant pressure from the mainstream media, which seeks to manipulate our motion, direct our focus and attention in particular directions that they want to determine for us. The narratives that are delivered to us through media, social media, mainstream media. What happens to us as individuals but also as a group, as a population, as a society, as a consequence. And how does that play out in our everyday interactions with each other? For myself, anyways, a majority of the people that I encounter in the civilian population are weak. They are panicked. They are easily scared. They are induced by what they are told by the information that is delivered to them, by what they are taking in to their ears and their eyes. They are induced in such a way that they are in a constant state of agitation that simmers just below the surface and bursts out in the form of a confession whenever you speak with them. But that they are panicked, They are afraid. They are weak. Mentally weak, emotionally weak. More than that, also, they are cowards. I don't say that flippantly or derogatorily. I say that as an observation, a statement of what I observe to be the truth. Most people feel helpless to affect reality, to change their situation, to change what is occurring in their homes or in their communities for the better. Very few people I've ever met in my adult life have set about to do evil to themselves, to others. More often than not, in my case, for myself as an individual, but also for those who I have encountered and interacted with in different positions of power in different countries. They believe, they are convicted in their hearts that what they are doing is good for themselves, 
for their communities and neighborhoods, for their country. And although you can speak to that and point at it and say, I do not think what you are doing is for the good of the whole so much as it is for the good of you. Because they are convinced that what they are doing for everybody is what's best, they either struggle or reject objectivity. They struggle with being objective or they reject objectivity. Because in their heart, they are convicted. What I am doing is right. What I am doing is good. What I am doing is what's best for everybody. What is good for me is good for you. But in America today, the general weakness, the panic, the fear, the helplessness, and how that manifests itself, how it occurs then in our streets and in our homes day to day, sometimes leads us to burn down our cities in a collective confession, a collective outcry that we are not helpless. We will refuse to be helpless anymore, and therefore we will take back control. We will help ourselves. Now, when people are emotional, they make illogical decisions, such as burning and looting and rioting. They destroy their own neighborhoods, their own communities, their own homes to demonstrate that they are not helpless. But the reverse reaction happens. Now they are even more helpless because what they could have built up, they destroyed. And what they must now rebuild, they lack the motivation, the courage, the wherewithal, the resources, the creativity to rebuild what they themselves destroyed. And so they expect others to do it for them. And as a consequence, they are even more helpless than they were before. And I think this weakness, this cowardice, this fear of not only facing reality, but the fear of thinking, the fear of right action, the fear of taking responsibility for our choices and decisions and the consequences of those choices and decisions has led us in the present to become a very mediocre society, a society made up of mediocre people who revel in mediocrity. In fact, they make a virtue out of mediocrity. And therefore, those who strive to be exceptional, to be extraordinary, in relation to mediocrity, are vilified, marginalized, insulted, ostracized, to the point that those who would like nothing better than to conform to the standards, to the, what do you want to say, the overall mores and rules and practices and traditions of a healthy society, people who genuinely want to conform, want to get along, want to contribute to a society that is healthy, now are seen as being detrimental to society. When I say extraordinary, I say that in relation to mediocrity. So in a sense, 
those who are considered extraordinary, extraordinary in relation to people who are mediocre, are actually just ordinary people. They want to be ordinary in the sense of being good, strong, confident, humble. They want to use their strengths and their abilities, their creativity and resources to lift others up, to help others, to improve the lives of individuals, of families, of communities, of society in general. They are the ones who want to sacrifice, who choose to sacrifice themselves for the good of the whole. In the past, in tribal societies, up to the very present, actually, in some places in the world, conformity is necessary for the survival of the tribe. If you don't conform your life and your behavior to the ways of the tribe, you are threatening the future of everyone in the tribe. If you are a hunter-gatherer and a warrior, you must hunt. You must forage for food. You must defend the village. Otherwise, everyone in the village is at risk. If you are responsible for planting and harvesting, you must plant and harvest because if you don't, in the long winter months ahead, we will all starve to death and the village will be destroyed. Whatever your particular calling is within the tribal society, you must fulfill your calling or the entire tribe suffers and is threatened. But what do you do when conformity actually threatens the survival of a society? What if nonconformity is actually the most healthy thing that an individual can do, can engage in, in a society that is sick, that strives for mediocrity? Think of it in terms of warrior culture and the warrior ethos. Life is a fight. All of life is a fight. Whether we choose to fight or we choose to quit and accept defeat, every day there's a fight. And as I discussed last week, then there's the fight within the fight. Being married is a fight because you have two individual human beings with their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own prejudices and biases, their own desires and cravings, things they like and don't like, attempting to live together 24 hours a day, seven days a week for their entire life, sickness and health, until death do us part. That is a struggle. It is a struggle to overcome your own insufficiencies, your own weaknesses and vulnerabilities, your own selfishness and self-serving attitude so that you can be present for your spouse, to serve your spouse, to sacrifice yourself for the betterment of your spouse. And then there's children, and then there's your neighbors and your colleagues, your teammates, your co-workers, your brothers-in-arms. All of these callings that demand self-sacrifice, that demand that we humble ourselves in order that others may thrive and profit and succeed as a consequence. But what if, again, to reiterate, what if nonconformity in the present tense is the most healthy way to contribute to society for us as individuals? That for those of us who embrace the fight, who recognize that life is a fight, who don't turn away and cower, 
who don't choose the path of weakness, who refuse and reject mediocrity, who recognize that our society is sick, horribly sick. To anyone who pays attention, I think that's obvious right now. In the past, conformity meant the survival of the tribe in a positive sense, usually. In the present tense, I think conformity to the ways, the mores, the values, the virtues of our society is actually detrimental to our society. And that if we go along to get along, what we are helping other people strive for is cowardice, weakness, panic, fear, mediocrity, a victim mentality rather than a warrior mentality. Life is a fight, and every day we choose whether or not to fight or give up. For some people, just putting their feet on the floor in the morning and standing up is a struggle, it's a fight. For some people, not relapsing, not being used and abused by drugs and alcohol is a fight every day to stay sober. For some people, staying in the marriage and not separating or filing for divorce is the fight within the fight of daily life. For some people, it is not getting shot and killed in our streets or on the battlefield in some foreign country. That is the fight. For some, the fight is to fill our minds with useful information that improves our knowledge and informs and educates us and helps us learn from others how to be a good man or a good husband or a good father or a good neighbor or a good soldier or a good fighter. We fight every day and decide whether or not, we choose whether or not to fill our minds with junk food or with useful information that educates us and helps us learn how to be better and to grow. Every day we choose whether or not to fight about what we put into our eyes and our ears and our mouth. Go to the store. How much food that's on the shelves in your local grocery store is poison? It poisons your body. It poisons your mind. It affects your emotions negatively because of how it affects your body and your mind. How many people see that as a fight? That health and wellness that getting enough sleep at night is a fight in a society that places almost no value on these things to their detriment. I am constantly mocked and the butt of jokes from people about how I choose to eat, what I choose to put into my body, how I choose to regulate my sleep cycles. I am insulted and put down by people because I choose to dedicate so much of my life to the discipline of improving myself as an individual. I'm even ridiculed and insulted by some for dedicating my life to training in martial arts. I'm mocked and ridiculed by people for dedicating too much of my life to being a pastor and, and, and serving a congregation of people. There's always going to be people who want to tear you down for the choices that you've made and how you choose to live your life for the better. There's always going to be people 
a majority of people are not going to recognize that what you're doing is not just to better yourself, but to actually improve the lives and lift up others around you. But because they are weak, because they are cowards and afraid to face themselves in the mirror in the morning, afraid to face the reality of who they are, afraid to take responsibility for the consequences of their own actions and what they've chosen day after day after day, which is to say they refuse to fight. And so every day they admit defeat, they fly the white flag, they lay down, and they accept whatever happens. They take a position of helplessness through their own personal choices. They choose to see themselves as victims, and therefore they choose not to stand up. They choose not to ask for help standing up. They choose not to change their social circles, change jobs, change where they live, change the people that are around them, because they see themselves as being helpless to affect what is happening. They're helpless to change tomorrow. And so they panic, and they're overcome by fear, and they give up. So that, for myself anyways, most people that I encounter have the look of someone who's being hunted rather than the look of a hunter. And what happens then as a consequence of always feeling like you're being hunted? How does that affect a person's mind? It's like Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst, said, I think, yeah, it was in the book, The Earth Has a Soul. He pointed out, we are on guard against contagious diseases of the body, but we are careless when it comes to the even more dangerous collective diseases of the mind. When we accept defeat, when we allow ourselves to become fearful and anxious, when we allow others to drive us in the direction of panic and induce these feelings in us, how do you think that affects our mind? How do you think that the diseases that we introduce into our body through what we eat and drink, through the medications that we stuff into our bodies to regulate what's happening in our minds and in our bodies, rather than focusing on building up our and strengthening our immune system, focusing on our gut-brain biome, focusing on intestinal bacterial health, rather than focusing on the types of books we read, the type of information that we're taking in, and asking, is this poisoning me? Or is this a vitamin for my brain? Now, not only is our body diseased, but our mind is diseased. And it's not a chicken or the egg kind of question. They function together. They feed into each other. As the body is sickened, so the mind becomes sickened. And as the mind becomes sickened, so does the body. And so we are on guard sometimes, some of us, actually not so much anymore, really, when you think about it. We're on guard for contagious diseases of the body. But I see people every day who are careless about what they put in their bodies. They're careless about managing their stress. And then when they get cancer, they don't understand how it happened to them. Well, you smoke. You drink. You put yourself in situations that are stressful in a negative way. You don't know how to manage your stress. You have laid the groundwork for cancer in your life by your choices. But because you refuse to take responsibility for your choices, you can't accept the consequences. 
versus if I can accept responsibility for my, the consequences of my choices before I make my choices, then maybe I'll be more purposeful about the choices I make because I recognize and I acknowledge and I accept that my choices have consequences and some of them are life-threatening. I'll die satisfied if I die serving my wife and my children, serving my congregation, being there for my teammates and my friends. I can die satisfied knowing that I dedicated my life to serving others, to helping others, helping lift people up, encouraging people, motivating people, being there for people, loving people, being kind and forgiving to people. I can die satisfied with that knowledge. But to me, it's horrific to contemplate that I might die weak and cowardly and that the best that anyone could say about me at my eulogy is, well, he did the best he could with what he had. I don't want to live a mediocre life amongst mediocre people in a society that is sick, both physically and mentally. And so I've chosen to be on guard, not just against the diseases of the body, but as Jung said, the diseases of the mind. As an addict, I'm quite conscious of what we call stinking thinking in recovery. That is the mind of the addict always thinks the worst, always goes to that dark place. But yet, isn't that human nature? To always think the worst about others, to always go to the negative, to not forgive but to judge, to be cruel rather than kind, to put down and condemn rather than love and embrace. What does it matter if we're strong people, mentally, physically, whatever it might be, if that strength isn't put to the service of serving, protecting, defending, and lifting up others who are weak? But at the same time, the dichotomy I think here is, how long do you, do you stand there with your hand held out, offering to help that person up, and they keep slapping your hand away? It's not that the person that I reached out to help up doesn't want my help. It's that sometimes, oftentimes, they slap my hand away and say, get away from me. I don't want your help. I don't need your help. Are we obligated to stand there with them? Perhaps suffer the same fate as them then? To be overwhelmed and overcome by their addictions? By the violence that they do to themselves and others? What if we get swallowed up by their choices. We're overcome and defeated by their choices because they're weak and they're cowardly. It's like the example of the lifeguard. If you've never taken lifeguard training or talked with someone who has, one of the things they teach you in lifeguard training is you never swim up to a person. You always want to swim around behind them and get at them from the rear, from their back. Because when a person is drowning and they're panicked, they're afraid for their lives, they'll grab you and they'll thrash, and they'll hit you, and they'll claw at you, because they're panicked, they're not thinking. And even though they might recognize that you're coming to help them, they're so overcome by panic that they thrash and fight you, 
And you could be knocked out. You could be pushed under. They could drown both of you in their panic, not realizing what they're doing is killing both of you. So you come up behind them. You swim up behind them. You get a hold of them from behind. But sometimes you can't get to them in time, and they drown. Sometimes you have to let them go, or you'll be killed along with them. Sometimes there's people you can't save. And that, to me, is the true tragedy of life. Is that every day I get up and I choose to fight. But there's just a lot of people that I've met over the years who chose to give up and quit and quit fighting. And they ate a bullet. They hung themselves in their basement or their garage. They jumped off a bridge. They took a heroic dose of pills. Or they just sat down one day in their easy boy. Lazy boy? Yeah, the recliner, their lazy boy. They just sat down. They turned on ESPN. And for the next 40 years, they just stared at the TV and wasted away. And nothing that I said, nothing that I did could convince them to get up again. On the other hand, as I've talked about, the reason I fight for myself is because I held a baby once, 18 months old. Or maybe, no, it was a baby. It's like six months old. Right, yeah, it was about a six-month-old baby, and he had 18 holes in his heart. He was born with 18 holes in his heart. Because his mother worked in the fields in Mexico, and the fields were sprayed every week with DDT, because there is no EPA in Mexico. So this pregnant woman was sprayed with DDT, poison, which causes birth defects. So this child was born with 18 holes in his heart. And I held him, along with many others at the clinic, because he was going to die. And there was nothing we could do to stop that. I've seen child trafficking, human trafficking, right in front of me, and there's nothing I could do about it. I've seen people give up and sit down and drink themselves to death because they just couldn't fight anymore. I've seen people sacrifice themselves in fire and in a hail of gunfire to save other people's lives. And they did it because they were strong. They did it because they didn't believe they had a choice. They did it because they placed a greater value in other people's lives than they did on their own life. But some didn't have a choice, like that baby, like the children I saw trafficked in Mexico and Guatemala. Some had a choice, and they chose not to make a choice. They chose to quit and accept defeat. Others chose to not accept defeat, to run toward the fight. And even in death, 
they knew success because they sacrificed themselves so others may live. So that's why I choose to fight every day. I choose to live for those who can't live, who can't breathe anymore, who would trade places with me in a second. I choose to fight for all those who gave up. I choose to fight so that possibly for those who are thinking about giving up and admitting defeat, they see me and say, well, there's Donovan. He's embraced the warrior ethic. He's embraced the stoic philosophy. He's chosen to live his life by a certain set of principles. He's chosen to take responsibility for what he puts into his body and his mind. So if he can do it, maybe I can do it. Maybe I should talk to him about how he does it. One last thing that I was thinking about this week is that on Monday, I'm recording this on Wednesday, July 15th. On Monday, it was my birthday. And July 13th, 1971, about 10.48 at night, I think it was, 10.42. I was born in Brainerd, Minnesota during a storm that knocked out half of the city's electric power. Half of the city blacked out from the storm. Two tornadoes touched down the night I was born. First time in like 100 years this had happened. And my mother said to me, I knew then that you were special. I knew that was an omen. <laughs> But that doesn't really mean anything when someone says, I knew you would be special. Special how? Special in the criminal sense? The most notorious bank robber in U.S. history? That kind of special? Or special in the Michael Phelps won more gold medals in the Summer Olympics than anybody else before him or since? That kind of special? What do you mean by special? For me, special is breaking three or four generations of addiction and alcoholism and abuse. To me, that's special. To be sober and to not abuse my kids. To me, that's what it means to be special. To not sit down in my lazy boy recliner and stare at ESPN for the next 40 years and just give up and admit defeat. But rather to get up and every day strive to be a better man. To me, that's what it means to be special. To be extraordinary in a sick society filled to the brim with weak, cowardly, panic-stricken, fearful people who strive for mediocrity. That's what it means to me to be special. So I think sometimes we just accept these terms without really considering what they mean. To be special can mean lots of things. But do we take the time to take that step back and observe ourselves and observe what's going on around us and ask, in this society, in this community, in my own house, in my church, at the gym, what does it mean to be special? Because I think oftentimes what it means to be special is just to show up for other people and to listen and to be compassionate, to joke around, to share your failures with others, because that's really what wisdom is in the end. It's just a succession of failures and you survive and live to tell about it. That's wisdom. It's recognizing that there are so many people that would trade places with you in a minute 
in spite of your addictions or your divorce record or your poor life choices is that you have a choice to get up in the morning and put your feet on the floor and enter the fight or to admit defeat. You can choose to conform yourself to the standards and the mores and the traditions and the values and the virtues of society as it is today. And that is to give in to sickness and the diseases of body and mind through the choices that you make about what you put into yourself and the people you surround yourself with, choices that you make. But I'm 49 years old. I'm not even supposed to be alive. But I am. And on Monday night for my birthday, I went to jujitsu. And I rolled with people most of the time. Let's see. Yeah, everybody I rolled with was half my age. Sometimes three times younger than me. Because I made that choice. And that's my joy. And that's my contentment and my satisfaction. So at 49, when so many other 49-year-olds around me have early onset of arthritis, are worried about this, that, or other bodily ailment, who have accepted the status quo, accepted this is just who I am, who struggle to get up off the floor when they kneel down. That's not for me. That's not the destiny. That's not the faith. That's not the direction that I, I want my life to go. I want to be able to roll around on the floor with my teammates. I want to be able to spar and clinch and knee and elbow and punch and kick and grapple with people half my age, three times younger than me, young enough to be my children. I want to be able to do that. But in order to do that, I have to make some choices, some conscious choices, and I have to be purposeful about those choices because I might not be, <laughs> I might not be 24 anymore, but that means then I just got to take better care of myself. I may not be the first person called up to take that stand, to be on the front line because of my age. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be in the second rank or the third rank or the fourth rank. When the call comes, when the trumpet blasts, when someone cries for help, I'll be there because I prepared for it. I've trained myself for it. I've chosen. And the choice that I've made is to fight, to fight against the coming darkness, to fight against those who would declare themselves to be my enemies and the enemies of those that I love, to fight against those who would poison my mind and my body with their lies and their deception, who want to co-opt my ideologies and my philosophies and my beliefs for their own profit margins. I choose to fight against them with every choice that I make every day. So be on guard, brothers and sisters. Be on your guard. Not just about the deception and the misinformation. You know, advertising. And those who would capitalize on your weaknesses. But also, be on your guard against those who spread disinformation through the media, on social media, who seek to seduce you with the promise of comfort and satisfaction by choosing the easy path, the downhill path, the path of least resistance, the path 
of little to no struggle, little to no challenge. The path of mediocrity. The path of mediocrity is the path of suffering and agony and panic and fear and helplessness and victimhood. It's the path that when you find yourself on it, you'll feel hunted because you are being hunted by those people and those things that want to take your life so that they can live versus the uphill path, the path of struggle and challenge, the path of the hunter, the warrior, the path of the one who helps and is not helpless, the path of the one who has courage and is not afraid, the path of the bold, not the path of the panicked, the path of the one who is extraordinary in a society who strives for mediocrity. That's the path of sacrifice but it is a sacrifice that we make so that others may benefit from our life. Because we choose to leave the world a better place than what we are born into, to enrich people around us, to encourage people around us, to help people around us be successful and recognize there are some people that we can't help. There are some people who are going to reject our help. That doesn't mean that we failed them. It doesn't mean that we failed ourselves. It just means that there's some people who want to drown. And there's nothing that we can do to stop them. And like I said, that's the tragedy of existence. That's the tragedy of life is that some choose to quit. Some choose in their panic to give up and to drown. Some people believe they'll find a peace in death. And to an extent, that's true, because they don't have to fight anymore. They don't have to make a choice anymore. But in my opinion, it's the coward's way. And I say that as someone who tried to take that choice, take that route. And thank God I failed. Because now I get to live for that baby who isn't alive. I get to live for those children who aren't alive. I get to live for all of those who sacrificed themselves so that I could live today and have this conversation with you and reflect on what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to fight? What does it mean to not conform to a sick, diseased society? So again, today, choose to fight. Fight for yourself. Fight for those around you. Fight for me. Fight and don't give up. Fight because it's worth it. Fight because if you don't, this world will be lesser for it. All right. That's all I got for today. Thank you so very much for your time and your attention. I know it's valuable and I value your time and attention. It's valuable to me. If you like the podcast, you want to support the podcast, subscribe, leave a positive review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can go to Anchor FM and hit the support button. I'm trying to build this podcast up as I move into some other business ventures I have on the back burner. 
that I'll start moving forward on as we get deeper into the summer. But it's just that constant movement. It's that constant movement toward what's the next thing? How can I better serve my family, my community, my teammates, and others? Whether it be personally, interpersonally, in my relationships, whether it be through business ventures, whatever it might be through this podcast. But thank you to everybody who supports the podcast already. Thank you to everybody who's already supported me financially and helped me improve the podcast in the hardware category and everything else. I truly appreciate it. Share it with friends. Continue the conversation offline. Otherwise, I love you, and I'll talk to you again on Saturday probably. Peace.